Father, we thank you for this wonderful season that we are in right now. Not just a season of joy and of celebration, but it's a season of remembering why we celebrate and why we have joy and why we have hope. And it's before, because before anyone did anything, you loved us enough to give. And you gave your very best. You gave your only begotten Son to a lost and dying world so that those that, so that, those that would believe in on Him and receive Him would have not just hope, would have everlasting life even now. And Father, as we go into this season and be, really begin this season, may we never lose that focus and never lose the joy and never lose the, the, the focus of why we celebrate this season. And now, Father, as this morning, we thank you for the wonderful time of worship and the wonderful time of singing together and the precious spirit that's in this room right now. Father, as we turn to your word, we ask you by the power of your spirit to open the eyes of our understanding that we would see you in a different light. Father, I believe that what you want to show us today, I know it's beyond my ability. I don't have the capacity or the ability to communicate what you want to show us today, but your Spirit does. And so, Father, as best I know how, I yield to your precious Holy Spirit to take this word and to breathe it into our hearts, that breath of life, that we might, your word and who you are might become more alive in us than you ever have before. And what a wonderful time of year for that. And we thank you that in Jesus' name. <clears throat> amen. amen and amen. Well, it's interesting because uh, I did not plan to get to this point at this, in this series uh, at, the, at this time of year, but that's kind of how it's worked out. So we've been look, learning uh, through the last number of months, really, at, uh, at why we're here, why the church is here, why you're here, why I'm here. And we saw that the reason that we're here is we're here for one purpose only. And there are many subparts of that. There are many other aspects of that. But that purpose is to preach the gospel. And we've looked at what the gospel is. It's the good news. Uh, and now we're looking at what does it mean to preach it and to proclaim it. And as I shared a few minutes ago, um, it's, we have a great example of it here today because you just heard the gospel. We heard the gospel last night shared with his testimony, shared by music, because while that anointed music is being sung, the Spirit of God is able to... He did things in my heart. In fact, I got my Christmas message last night. And it's the gospel, and it was just in one phrase that he said that, that dropped in me. So the Spirit of God is active if we're at all open. This is why I love hearing the Christmas music sung by people that you know are believers and you know it's real, it's something coming out of their heart and they're not just singing beautiful, appropriate, uh, seasonal songs, but they're singing the gospel out of their heart and when they do that, the Spirit of God is able to preach to us from those sharings. So that's what we've been looking at and we've looked over, uh, we've looked at, uh, in, in Acts chapter 1, we've seen that we're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we saw that Jesus told his disciples that they were to wait in Jerusalem until they are endued with power from on high because they were not equipped in themselves to go preach the gospel because the preaching of the gospel is more than just telling a story. The preaching of gospel is more than just giving information because to preach the gospel is to communicate and declare Christ and God and what God is like. And that's beyond my vocabulary. It's beyond my ability. It's beyond your ability. And that's why Jesus said, you must wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with the power to do that. And then he said in verse 8, and then here's what you're to do with that. You're to go and be witnesses of me. Be my witnesses into Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And we looked at that verse, verse 8 in Acts chapter 1, and we saw that the word witness is not a verb. 
Because so often we think what we're supposed to do is go and witness. It's something we're supposed to do. And that's a very small part of it because the problem is you can go do witnessing on Saturday morning or Sunday afternoon and then live like the devil the rest of the week. But that's why Jesus didn't talk to us about what we were to do. He talked to us about who we were to be. And if you all be who He says to be, then you will do what He said to do. And what He said is you are to be witnesses of Me. And then we said, all right, what does it mean to be a witness? And I went you through, I took you through some, uh, because of my background as a lawyer, I took you through some examples of what legally a witness is. But we looked at the greatest example of a witness there is, and that's Jesus. Because <clears throat> Jesus says in a number of places, but the one we really focused on is in John chapter 14, where Jesus says, said, said Philip, have you, you've been, lived with me so long and you don't realize that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is saying, I have been a perfect witness of my Father. And then he said, and here's the key, he said, don't you understand that the words I spoke, I didn't speak on my own? See, Jesus only spoke His Father's words because Jesus' commitment was to be a communicator, a reflection of His Father. And he said, the Father in me, He's the one that does the works. And then we looked at, well, that's wonderful for Jesus, because of course He's the Son of God, and it's wonderful, and understand Jesus could do that, but I could never be a, a witness of Christ. I could never be a witness of Him, because I know myself too well. But Jesus took that excuse away from us, because He didn't say, I learned how to be a great witness. See, that would mean that Jesus learned how to imitate His Father. <clears throat> and we're not to imitate Jesus, because you do, if you're imitating someone, you do that in your own strength. But Jesus made very clear, He said, I did not imitate my Father, it was literally the Father in me that spoke. It was literally the Father in me that did those works. And then Jesus said, and I've got good news for you, it's to your advantage that I'm going to leave here. And I'm sure they couldn't begin to understand why it would be to their advantage. I mean, they've got God's Son living among them, sleeping with them. They don't have to worry about praying to Him, they just have to reach over and touch Him. I feel the Lord's presence. No, they just reach over and they could touch His robe. I wonder what Jesus is saying. No, they could hear it with their natural ears. If whenever they got into a storm, when they got afraid, they just cried out to Him and He immediately took care of the problem. When they ran out of food, He fed 5,000 men, let alone their children. And then another time He fed 4,000. And, and they watched Him heal. They watched Him take care of every need, answer every question. Why could it be to their advantage that He was going to leave? I'm sure they didn't understand that. But how many of you know that God knows better than we do? I hope you understand that. And Jesus said, because when I leave here, I'm going to ask the Father. And He's going to send to live in you the same helper that's been in me. He said, He has been here with you. That's in me, Jesus said. But because I'm going to leave, I'm going to ask Him, and He's going to send Him in the same presence of the Father that has been in me is now going to be in you so that you can go do the same, the Father can do the same works through you that He's done through me. So then we began to look at, all right, what are some of these works? What, what, is, what is it that Jesus' life communicated, and what did Jesus... What did Jesus tell, about, tell us about the Father? What was He a witness of with the Father? And we began to look at that, and Jesus told some stories to give us examples. And we looked at one of those stories, the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, where a lawyer came to Jesus and said, uh, uh, you know, what do I have to do to obtain eternal life? And the, the, the Bible says he was just testing Jesus. He wasn't sincere. And Jesus said, well, what is the law? You've got to keep the law. What does the law say? And he said, well, the law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. 
and your neighbor as yourself. He said, well, go and do likewise and you shall live. And then the lawyer, trying to justify himself, trying to define the limits of his responsibility, said, well, then who is my neighbor? And we looked at it from the point of view that what the lawyer was trying to do is find out what are the limits of my responsibility. And so Jesus told this simple story about, three, about a man that was, was mugged, stripped, beaten, left half dead, all of his possessions taken, and three men came by. The, first, the boat, two first two were men of God. There was a Levite and there was a priest, people that were called to be witnesses and represent God to the people, and they looked at this man's need and crossed to the other side of the street. They decided he was not their responsibility. And then we have a Samaritan who was hated by the Jews. They were half-breeds. There was a racial issue with them. And they, he looked at him and it says, and here's the key word, he was moved with compassion. And I've shared with you the word compassion literally means to experience along with with somebody. It's different from sympathy. You can be sympathetic for somebody and not be touched by it. To be sympathetic means you feel sorry for somebody. And that's okay, but that doesn't move you because you can be distant and still feel sorry for somebody. In fact, in some ways, it enhances that distance. But when you have compassion on somebody, you're feeling what they're going through. And the Bible says God, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. One of the reasons God took on flesh and dwelt among us is so that He could identify with our weaknesses, understand our weaknesses, and be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So Hebrews 4 says we have a high priest, a faithful high priest, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So you can come to Him in a time of need, and He understands what it's like to deal with temptation. He understands what it's like to deal with tiredness. But the good news is He overcame it every time, so He can not only identify with what you're going through, but He can help you to overcome it if we turn to Him. And so we saw that this Samaritan was touched with his compassion. And Jesus used it to show him the Samaritan, therefore, whatever he needed, he bound up his wounds, he put him on his donkey, took him to the inn, and he told the innkeeper, he said, when I've got to go tomorrow, here's money to take care of him, and when I come back, if he still has needs, I'm going to pay whatever, you advance it, and I'll pay it. In other words, he gave him his credit card and says, you take care of his needs, and I will back it up, I will pay for it. And then Jesus asked, which one do you think was his neighbor? And the lawyer said, well, I guess it's the one that had mercy. See, the difference is the Samaritan had no limitations, no boundaries on his love, on boundaries on what he was willing to do. And what Jesus was subtly communicating is God has no boundaries on his love because we looked and saw that just as this Samaritan was willing to cross the street and minister to this man's need, whatever he needed, in the same way, and this is what we celebrate this time of year, God crossed, crossed the enormous street of the gulf between heaven and earth, of, of the spirit realm and our, 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 our natural physical realm. He crossed that incredible street to come and to have compassion on us, to feel what we felt so that He could save us and deliver us. God didn't count. And see, I wonder how much this is going to count. And then we looked at another story that Jesus told, which gave another aspect of this. It told us, you know, it told us you know, how much is he willing to love us? Who is he willing to save? And we saw that the, the, the parables last time about that, that Jesus told the example, talking to the, because he was sitting with the Pharisees and the, and the sinners and the, and the publicans, the tax collectors came to sit and to hear what he had to say. And we've asked the question, if they came to sit at Jesus' feet to hear what he had to say and we're his body, how come they don't come here to sit at our feet and hear what we have to say about him? Somewhere there's a disconnect. Somewhere there's something missing. And maybe it's this heart 
Maybe it's these limitations. Maybe we're not allowing God to love through us with the love He has. Because that's what God wants to do. It's not that He's asking you to do something beyond your means. He's asking you to allow Him to love people through you. And the problem is our thinking, our will creates limitations on what He's able to do. Not what He wants to do, what He's able to do through us. And we saw one of those limitations is, well, I've got limits on how far I'm willing to go. It's my time. I've got a busy schedule. I got, and believe me, I'm talking to me as much as you. And we saw Jesus told another story, a story about a shepherd that had a hundred sheep and one of them wandered off. And he left the 99 to go find the one that was lost. And we looked at that and saw that's not good business. That doesn't make sense. You know, it's the ones expendable. If you're going to have 99% that are, that are safe, why leave, endanger them to go find the lost? But because that's the shepherd's heart is to not abandon any. And we saw that from that we can conclude that if you or if I were the only one that needed Jesus to come to the earth to hang on that cross and die, he would have done it just for you. Because it's showing that there's no limit on God's love. His love is boundless. He has no limits on what He's loved. He didn't do a calculation to decide, you know what, I can see what they're going to add to the body of Christ. I can see what they can do to the church. I can see what talent they bring in. Yeah, they're worth saving. But these people, these scum of the earth that are down on Skid Row this morning, nah, they're not worth anything. That's not God's heart. We'll see that even more clearly this morning. And then we looked at the, the story of a father whose two sons grew up and one of them decided, I want to go prove myself and live my own life. And uh, we called him the prodigal. And he asked for his inheritance. His father gave his, him his inheritance and he went out and he squandered it. He wasted it. I mean, he, and we went into detail about what that meant, especially in that culture in that day and age. And then when he finally came to his senses and came home, the father's love didn't just embrace him, it was looking for him. It was looking... See, in the first case, it was a sheep that got lost. That's why the shepherd went after him. But in this case, he wasn't lost. He just decided to take his life into his own hands and do what he wanted to do. And the father had to let him go. But he let him go in, 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 with his, his hands, but he never let him go with his heart. He was looking every morning to see this son because it said when the son finally came to his senses to come back, the father saw him a long way off, which means he had to be looking for him. So that tells us the father's always looking for the lost. Even the prodigal, even the stubborn, even the rebellious that want to go off and do their own thing. And we saw that Psalm 139 tells us, among all the other wonderful things in that psalm, that God's Spirit goes even down to the gates of hell with somebody to, to rescue them the moment they'll turn. If they'll turn right at the, as the, as the furnace of hell, hits them in the face, if they turn at that moment, His Spirit is there to rescue them. There's nowhere you can go that His Spirit is not going to seek you and hope to receive you. Hope that you'll turn around, waiting for you to turn around so God's not just sitting in heaven. And He wouldn't be entitled to if He wanted to. If he wanted to, he would be perfectly entitled to just sit in heaven and say, Hey, I gave you the word. You figure it out for yourself. If you're not smart enough to come to me, that's tough. That's your tough luck. But that's not his heart. His heart is not to find out how few he can have. His heart is to receive as many as possible. As many as will come. For Jesus died for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we've looked at the fact that in the fact that his love is boundless. Of who he'll love. There's no limit on who he'll love. He loves the world. On who he'll save. There's no limit on who he'll save. And now we want to look this morning at, at, at how much of his love he's willing, oh, how much he's willing to pay for us. 
How much is he willing to pay? You know, when you go this time of year and Christmas time and you look at presents and, you know, sometimes your kids or your grandkids may say, oh, I want this and I want that because they've seen it on television or wherever and you say, oh, that's exciting and then you go to the store or you go online and say, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I now see what that costs. And there might not be a limit on what you'd like to give, but there may well be a limit on what you're able responsibly to give. And what you do is we go through an evaluation, and, and often as we look at ourselves until our minds are renewed, we look at, you know, we, most people that struggle in life are struggling with a poor self-image. It may have come from your childhood, it may have just come, you may have developed it on your own. A poor self-image. And the part of the good news of the gospel is that God's come to change your image. Your self-image may be correct, but God come to take, God, Jesus came to take your righteousness and replace it with His, so it should no longer be my image of myself, but it's the image God has given me through Christ, to be clothed with Christ, because you've been in, if you're in Christ, you've been grafted into not just the family of God, into the body of Christ, so that when Jesus, God sees you, He sees Jesus. I'm going to say that again. When God sees you, He sees Jesus because you're part of Him. When I get up in the morning and I go to shave this thing, this face of mine, I don't look at my face and think that, you know, you don't, you're, there's, you know you're sleepy looking and you're no, you don't look awake and you, know, you don't look quite the way you did 20 years ago and you don't, you know, your hair's a different color and although at this stage I'm glad I have some. You know, and I don't have as much as I used to, and you just start looking at yourself, you know, and you begin to think things about yourself, and then you've got to remind yourself that's not how God sees you. I don't see in my face, I don't see my hand as, as, as a something separate from me. In fact, if you get up in the middle of the night, and you don't happen to have the light on or your slippers on, and you stub your toe, you stubbed your, your toe, you don't go say, what a stupid toe to get stubbed, my goodness, you are an idiot! Don't you know that that chair's there? No, all of your body begins to grab that toe and you tell your wife in the morning, you know what happened in the morning? I stubbed my toe because you don't separate your toe from who you are. In the same way, if you're part of Christ, God doesn't separate you out as a different part. Your identity is in Christ. And this is what we have to renew our minds to. So, Let's take a look, because we're going to look this morning at, we're looking at His boundless love that has, there's no limits on His love. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at what's He willing to pay for you. That's an evidence of your value to Him. Not your value in your eyes, not your value in your family's eyes or your boss's eyes or anybody else's eyes. It's your value in God's eyes, because after all, He's the only one that matters. Verse 6, Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still without strength, we'll talk about that in a minute, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates. God demonstrates. Ever go to a supermarket or 
I don't know, whether Sam's Club or something like that, and, and, and you go by a, a, a little counter and there's somebody with a funny hat on and they've got, uh, uh, they've got dishes out there and maybe a little cooker, and what they've done is they've, you know, they're, trying, they're selling you these crackers or they're selling you this, these hors d'oeuvres, and what they've done is they've made a sample of them to demonstrate, well, we got a great example out there. Because we got coffee out there from John Waller's ministry, and they want, they'll give you a little cup to sample it, and that sample demonstrates to you what that coffee's like. So they're not asking you to buy that coffee on faith. They'll give you a taste. We've got to wait till the service over. They're going to give you a taste, a chance, so they can demonstrate to you the quality of the coffee because it's in bag. By the way, it's very good. It's in bags, and they sell it to you, and they'll give it to you in a box. But they'll give you a taste of it so they can demonstrate what it's like. I don't know if they still do it anymore, but it used to be that, that there were men that, and women, I guess, that went door-to-door selling vacuum cleaners. And they would come into your house and they would say, this is the greatest vacuum cleaner that's ever been made. And you kind of look at them and say, well, I want to demonstrate it to you. I want to show you so there's physical evidence in your sight of how good this is. So they pull out a box of dirt and dump it on your clean rug and mess it around. And then they take their vacuum cleaner and they demonstrate to you. They prove to you that the word that they're telling you about that vacuum cleaner is the truth by showing you some tangible evidence that it is exactly as good as it says. And this verse says, God did that. He didn't just ask us to trust that He loves us. He demonstrated His love towards us. He proved His love towards us. Now God doesn't have to prove anything because He's God. But He will do that because He knows us and understands what we need. God demonstrated His own love for us. He opened the window of His heart so that you could see into His heart. God demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 8, verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by this life. Now, go back to verse 6. While we were still without strength, that means had did not have the ability to save yourself, in due time, that was in the time God had ordained, Christ died for the church. That's not what it says. Christ died for the good ones, the ones that He knew would bring value to the church. No, He died for the what? The ungodly. Now I want to go back and remind you of something that we looked at before as to who this ungodly is. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1. We talked about this in the very beginning when we talked about the gospel is the power of God under salvation. And we talked about two types of righteousness that Romans chapter 1 talks about. So if you've got that verse, this would be verse, um, verse one, verse eight, chapter 1, verse 18. We saw that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now remember we just looked at, God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were weak, while we were without strength, Christ, His only beloved Son, died for whom? For the ungodly. Now we're going to go back because Paul has already told us who the ungodly are and what their ungodliness is is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So God's wrath, because He's a holy God, His wrath is revealed against all, uh, all, all, look at the word all, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, why? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, and His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We've looked at this before. So Paul is, Paul is saying, don't you understand that everyone is capable and has a responsibility to believe that God is real and God is the Creator, because all you've got to do is open your eyes and you can realize that no man created this. This doesn't just evolve out of nothing. This has to have an intelligent mind, an intelligent will behind it. And I shared with you that the first one of our children that I was allowed to be in the delivery room with when she was born, our daughter, and we weren't saved at the time, and I watched her birth and come out. All I knew is two of us went into this room, and now there were three of us in the room. Obviously the doctor was there too. And the words literally out of my mouth... How can anybody not believe there's a God? I just saw a human being born. Wow! And I was an unemotional, very rational, logical lawyer at the time. And I was moved to tears by what I saw. I was moved to tears by what I saw. You have to in, in, intentionally close your eyes. That's what he says about... Suppressing the truth. You have to intentionally close your eyes, close your ears, and close your heart to not see there has to be a creator. You have to su- purposely suppress the truth, which is what's going on in the world, in all unrighteousness. Let's go on to verse 21. Because although they knew God, They did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, which is what this world is saturated with right now, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, creeping things, cars, jobs, houses any other thing that we see as our God. Therefore God gave them up to their uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's who were the ungodly that God demonstrated His love for by sending His precious Son. Now think of this. I mean, we know the gospel in our head, but it needs to touch our heart. 
Think of this, because this is, this is Paul's writing in chapter 5. This demonstrates, this demonstrates what God's love is like. This demonstrates what God's heart is like, His nature, His character. God looked at the ungodly. God looked at His enemies. Oh, by the way, Romans chapter 2, just in case we're sitting here feeling pretty good, because that's not us. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are without excuse, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same thing. So chapter 1 talks about those that just let themselves go and they don't care about God, they're just going to go do their own things. Chapter 2 talks about those that know God, but we sit around judging those that don't. We're talking about God's heart today, not the church's heart. They're supposed to be the same. Maybe this is why the sinners and the tax collectors don't line up with the door to sit and hear what we have to say when they did to hear what Jesus had to say. Because chapter 1 talks about the ungodly that are living their life as if there no God exists. Chapter 2 talks about those that believe in God that are looking down our noses at those that don't believe in God as if they're somehow second-class people. And when we do, we forget that's where all of us were. And in fact, in God's eyes, when we're judging others for things that we have done and are doing, we're just as guilty as they are. And so Romans 5 is telling us God loved us so much he demonstrated His love that not only did He give His Son, His precious Son, who never sinned, His precious Son, who loved Him with all His heart, His precious Son, who was perfectly obedient, His precious Son, who was pure and holy and righteous, He gave that pure, holy, righteous Son into the hands of ungodly enemies of God to do with what they wanted to in that Roman praetorium, to do with what they wanted to when they nailed Him to the cross to shame him, to spit on him. It says in Isaiah chapter 50, uh, 53 verse 10 that it pleased God to bruise him. Not because God hated his son. In the economy of God's heart, God looked through that horrible experience and saw you and saw me. But he didn't, he didn't see you sitting in church here this morning. He saw you where you were when he found you. Some of you were out in the, out, you were down in the gutter. Some of you were hooked on drugs. Some of you, then some of us were up and, and had, and prospered. And we weren't hooked on those things, but we were just as lost. But we thought, we looked down at people that were in the gutter. We looked at down at people whose lives were a mess and think we were better than they. And yet we were just as ungodly. Because we were struggling, we were, we were committing a more deadly dangerous sin. It was called pride. We're looking at the heart of God, that God demonstrated His love for us and that Christ Jesus died for the ungodly, the ungodly in chapter 1 that just, hey, there's no God, I can do what I want to do. And then there's the ungodly that sit in church and worship God and love God and go out the doors and judge others as if we were God Himself. See, God looked at the ungodly and love them 
and gave his son for them. The church looks at the ungodly and says, boy, look at how terrible they are. Makes me feel better about who I am. And that's even more ungodly. But Christ died for us too. Go quickly, we're going to look, take a quick look at, in Genesis chapter 32 because there are two examples that came to me as I was meditating on this. We're looking again at what's the limits on God's love and we've seen He has no limit on who He loves, He has no limit on who He saves, and this morning there's no limit on what He was willing to pay for us. Moses is one of the most amazing people in the Bible. He's one of my heroes. And the other one I, we're going to look at in a minute, other than obviously Jesus. Moses was a man who was very fallible. Moses was a man who, who uh, knew there was a call in his life, was supernaturally saved by his parents who exercised their faith. And, and, and then Moses grew up in Pharaoh's home being raised as if he were Pharaoh's daughter because it was Pharaoh's daughter that found him when his parents let him go in that basket in the bulrushes. And so he knew, grew up knowing, knowing I believe, believing he was the, he was the deliverer when, the, because the people were being persecuted, they were being treated horribly as slaves. And he knew he was a Hebrew because first of all, every Jewish male was circumcised on the eighth day and the, and the, the Egyptians weren't. Not only that, his mother's the one that raised him. She nursed him and so she obviously had a chance to speak into his life who he was and what his purpose was. And he grew up knowing that and we know that because when he got to be of age he was out among his own people inquiring of them and, 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 and when they, uh, uh, he sees uh, two Egyptians fighting and there's a Roman uh, Egyptian officer comes in, he slays the officer and then comes back the next day and sees two Israel, Israelites fighting and, and they turn to him and say, you know, who do you think you are? And, and you're the one that killed that Egypt, the Egyptian guard. And, and Moses basically says, I'm here to deliver you. Let's go. And they just kind of look at him and say, who are you? Because they weren't ready. And we find out as we read on, Moses wasn't ready. So he goes out for the next 40 years and wanders around in a wilderness. And he must have thought his life was over, his calling was over, he'd blown it. What he didn't know is he was going through 40 years of training in the wilderness because that's the same wilderness that he was going to lead God's people in over the next 40 years. And he's out there and, and, and he comes back and at the right time and supernaturally God brings the people out and Moses is fulfilling his calling and these people come out and everything is great. God delivers them, opens the Red Sea. They see the Egyptian army destroyed. They go out there and they don't make it three days before they start complaining. As soon as their canteen started getting dry. Why did you bring us out here to die? Sometimes they cry out to God, but most of the time they cry out to the man of God who stood in God's place because they couldn't see God, so they took it out on the man of God that was standing in for God. And, and, and so there were times Moses was just frustrated with them. They, 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 they had all the evidence of what God was going to do for them, and all they wanted to do was go back to Egypt. The moment something got tough, they wanted to go back to Egypt. The moment they got tough, all they could remember is the wonderful food they were eating, the leeks and the onions. I like onions and I like leeks, but not as a diet. They were complaining about the food God supernaturally brought down from them out of heaven. Didn't have to pay for it. All they had to go do was pick it up and then, then turn it into bread. And, they, they, but, and God was training them through all of this. And they kept complaining and they kept complaining. And Moses you know, would deal with that and deal with that. And now God calls Moses up near the end of that first year. Calls Moses up onto the mountain because God's going to give him handwritten by God's own finger the law on, a, on, a, on, ta- on tablets, of, tablets of stone. 
And while he's up there, the very first commandment that's written there is you shall have no other gods before me because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And while that's going on down in the camp, Moses' brother Aaron is leading the build the calf committee. Because they've come to him saying, we can't see Moses, we can't see our leader. So you need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight because if you just go by faith, by sight, you're going to be moved by what people do. And so they came to, to Aaron and they said, we have to have a calf and so we have to have something to worship that we can see. So they collected all the gold that God had given them from the Egyptians so that they could worship God in the tabernacle and instead they made a calf and they didn't just say, this is, we're going to worship the calf. This is God. This is Jehovah who is our God. And God upset. And he says, you need to go down and deal with this. Moses comes down and he deals with it. He goes back up on the mountain and he knows God is, you know, God has has emotions. He doesn't lose his temper, but God can get angry. We just read about the wrath of God against all godliness. God is ticked off at this people. I want you to see something here. Verse 32. Moses has gone back up the mountain. Verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people who have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, look at this, if you will forgive them sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Now we're not talking about Jesus here, we're talking about Moses. Moses is saying to, the, to God, he's interceding for them. And he's saying, God, please forgive them. And if you won't forgive them, then you take my life, not just my natural life, then you take my soul out of the book of life. Moses, now you don't say that to God casually, because God's the one that can do it. You may say it to me, I may get discouraged or something and say it to you, may say, oh, you know, but you say it to God, God has the ability to go, okay, you're gone. And by the way, he's standing in God's presence. I'm emphasizing that because Moses didn't say this lightly. We're talking about the boundlessness of love with all the frustration that Moses had to deal with. There were times when it's like, like, it almost sounds like a, a father and mother because Moses, the way these people you, you gave me are causing all this trouble and God will look and know the people, your people, are causing all the trouble. It's like at one point they neither of them wanted to own them. But here's Moses' heart. God forgive them, the very people that have given me trouble. And at one point God says, look, I've had it. I'm going to fry them on the spot, turn them into enormous grease spot, and I'm going to start over with you. Now, if there were any pride left in Moses, that could go to your head. I mean, if God says, look, there are people that have given you all this trouble, I agree with you. They're a bunch of turkeys. I'm done with them. You and me, we're going to start over again. Whoa. God's chosen me to start over. See, but the heart of God, the heart of God is to never give up. The heart of God is that no matter how much trouble they gave him, Moses' heart, and Moses is just a man, Moses' heart was, God, forgive them. And if you won't forgive them, then take me instead. How much is God willing to pay? for a lost soul. Moses was willing to give his soul up. And as it turned out, he didn't have to. 
Well, let's go over to Romans chapter 9. Let's see a different example. Paul's here teaching on grace as we've been looking at and the gospel. And having come to the end of this powerful chapter 8, he now turns his attention to Israel. Romans 9 verse 1, I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Talking about Israel. For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. And he goes on to talk about them. Paul is saying, and this he's sincere, because it's written forever. He's saying, my heart breaks for my, my people because they can't see what I've seen yet. And, and if it would do any good, I'd give my soul up for them. So the point is this. We've been looking at what are the boundaries of love? What are the boundaries of God's love? What are the boundaries of what God wants to be able to do through us? And He has no limit, but we put the limits on Him because we're so concerned about ourselves and we judging other people. And because of our humanness, we need to get our eyes not on outward things, but on that love of God that's inside of us. Paul had a taste of that. Moses had a taste of it. And Paul's saying, My heart. see, that kind of love, we looked at that with the Good Samaritan. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't looking at the cost. He, well, I wonder how much it's going to cost me because there's limits. All he looked at is he had compassion. He felt this man's need and he was so moved with that compassion that he had to do whatever it was to meet that man's need. Jesus looking out over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 10 It says he was moved by compassion and he prayed that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers out into the field. And you and I are answers to that prayer. But we're to bring that same love, that love of God that's in us. Paul was willing. So we've looked at who he loves, who he's willing to love. We've looked at who he's willing to save. We've looked at how much he's willing to pay. <clears throat> Now we're going to look at How does his love act? Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Very famous verses. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of God, really what God is like. What the kingdom of God is like. And he's showing us what the standard is and then why. Again, we're looking at the heart of God. We'll pick up here in um, Matthew 5.38. Jesus is talking to His disciples. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, but if you read carefully, this is given to His, his disciples. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic away... Let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And this is what it's all about. You have heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who speak spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? 
that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For what does He do? He makes the sun shine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you just love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you just greet your neighbor only, what do you more than others? Because don't even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, that means complete, as your Father in heaven is complete. Now some people have trouble with verses 38 and 39 up there where he talks about, you know, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. He's not saying it's never right to, give, to defend yourself. What is it when somebody slaps you on the cheek? What's the very thing, what's your, what's your flesh's reaction? Try that again. <laughs> try, try that again. What is it? It's about me. It's about me. You just did something to me and I'm going to do something back to you. And, and I'm right to do it because what you did to me was wrong. And that's really what he's talking about in there. It's, it's, it's because I have a limit. You know, I'm concerned about me and how people look at me and how people treat me. That if somebody does something to me, I, want, I may not want to get back at them, but I want justice. I want this to be put right. And I'm not saying it's, ever, it's wrong to get ju- for justice to be done. The issue is here is I'm defending myself. I'm promoting myself. I'm taking care of myself. It's about me over you. There's limits on my love. And when he talks about lending to those that will borrow from you, we look and, and, and we look at, well, I don't know if they can afford to give back to me. What am I going to get back out of this? Well, what if God had that attitude? Isn't that putting limits on what I'm willing to do? Now, I'm not talking about just giving everything you have away. It's being, it, we're, what we're talking about is taking the limits off of God who's in us. We're not talking about you or me coming up with what we think is good. It's when the God's Spirit in us prompts us to do something and our mind looks at them and says, well, I wouldn't do that for them. Who are they? They don't need this. They don't. But then we're putting limits on what God wants to do in us and through us. We're not talking about, you know, I need to go give my money to everybody that comes along in the street. We're talking about allowing God to, love his, to give His love through you and through me. But when we have limits on what we're willing to do, we've now limited what God's able to do even though He wants to do more through us. And then, this is where it really gets tough. Verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Now we looked before at the Samaritan and we saw who he saw was his neighbor, whoever had a need. I say to you, love your enemies. Isn't that what God did? We just read in Romans chapter 5. That while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He didn't die for the church. He didn't die for those that love Him. He died for us while we were enemies. The only reason you can love Him today is because He died for you when you didn't. And you may say, well, pastor, you know, God wasn't my enemy. I've been in church my whole life. I was raised in church, you know. I've loved God. Well, have you? Or have you loved yourself more than you've loved God? Have you put limits on what you're willing to give of yourself to Him? Then that part of you, you love more than you love Him. Have you ever been stubborn 
Have you ever resisted? Have you ever lied about whether you were stubborn or resisted? Because <laughs> some of you just did it now. <laughs> However, you ever, have you ever not told the complete truth? That's called a lie. However, you hated anybody. That's called murder. See, God's standards are Himself. And by that standard, we're enemies of God because we've, tr- we've talked about this before. All of us, until we came to Christ, we tried to establish our own kingdom. And I was the king of my kingdom because I was the one that made the final decisions of what I do because after all, it's my body so I can do with my body what I want to do with it. And the world is ripe with that attitude right now. It's my body. I can do what I, I want to do. That's establishing my own kingdom. And this is my kingdom, and I'm king in this kingdom, and don't tell me what I'm going to do, because I'm king here. And I'll let you be king in your kingdom, because that way I feel good about, you leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. You can be king in your kingdom, and I'm king in my kingdom. But if I'm king in my kingdom, and you're king in in your kingdom, then God's not king in this kingdom. I've established my own kingdom in rebellion against His kingdom. And that's the root of all sin. This is why whether you were a good sinner or you were a lousy, rotten sinner, I'm not referring to how well you sinned, but you were a good person that sinned and you were a horrible person that sinned. We all lived in rebellion against God's authority. So we were enemies. We had our own kingdom and we were at war against Him and His right to us because He created us. But He loved us so much that look what He did. It says, verse 43, Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Gets harder. Bless those that curse you. So you can have enemies that are kind of at a distance and you don't have to confront them. But when somebody's cursed you, he says, don't just even ignore it, bless them back. It gets even tougher. Do good to those who hate you. Don't just sit there to your neighbor that's been saying things about you and throwing trash over in your yard or whatever it's been doing and just sit in your house and say, well, I'm going to love them, God. I'm going to love them. I know what they've done to me, but I'm going to love them. What if God did that? He just sat in a throne in heaven said, I know they're rebelling against me, but I'm going to sit here and love them. I'm going to love them all the way to hell. I'm going to love them all the way, even when they go to hell, I'm still going to love them. But see, this kind of love can't sit still. This kind of love has to do something. He says, he doesn't say just love your neighbors. He says, do good to those who hate you. Over in Romans chapter 13, he says, it's like pouring coals of fire on their head. It allows God to work in their lives. And then it gets even tougher. Pray for those who spitefully use you. And Percy, think of, no, wait a minute, we're, we're not talking about just an enemy that's out there somewhere that doesn't like you or has written something about you on Facebook. We're not just talking about your neighbor that throws their trash over in your yard or says things about you. We're talking about somebody, when it says who spitefully use you, that means they've thought about it, they've planned it out, and they've figured what it is that's going to hurt them the most. And they've chosen to pick that which is going to hurt you the most. They planned this out. Their purpose is to hurt you and take advantage. Nobody likes to be used because it's demeaning. They're going to not just use you, they're going to spitefully use you and 
persecute you because of what you believe. And what does he say to do for them? Pray for those. And by the way, the prayer isn't, God, get them. <laughs> Give them what they deserve. Because if God starts dealing out what people deserve, I don't want it. Now look at why. This is the key. We're talking about the, the bounds of God's love. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, you may act like your Father. For He makes... Matthew chapter 5, very famous verses. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of God, really what God is like, what the kingdom of God is like. And He's showing us what the standard is and then why. Again, we're looking at the heart of God. We'll pick up here in um, Matthew 5.38. Jesus is talking to His disciples. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, but if you read carefully, this is given to His, his disciples. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic away, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And this is what it's all about. You have heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For what does He do? He makes the sun shine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you just love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you just greet your neighbor only, what do you more than others? Because don't even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, that means complete, as your Father in heaven is complete. Now some people have trouble with verses 38 and 39 up there where he talks about, you know, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. He's not saying it's never right to, give, to defend yourself. What is it when somebody slaps you on the cheek? What's the very thing, what's your, what's your flesh's reaction? Try that again. <laughs> try, try that again. What is it? It's about me. It's about me. You just did something to me and I'm going to do something back to you. And, and I'm right to do it because what you did to me was wrong. And that's really what he's talking about in there. It's, it's, it's because I have a limit. You know, I'm concerned about me and how people look at me and how people treat me. That if somebody does something to me, I, want, I may not want to get back at them, but I want justice. I want this to be put right. And I'm not saying it's, ever, it's wrong to get ju for justice to be done. The issue is here is I'm defending myself. I'm promoting myself. I'm taking care of myself. It's about me over you. There's limits on my love. And when he talks about lending to those that will borrow from you, we look and, and, and we look at, well, I don't know if they can afford to give back to me. What am I going to get back out of this? Well, what if God had that attitude? Isn't that putting limits on what I'm willing to do? Now, I'm not talking about just giving everything you have away. It's being, it, we're, what we're talking about 
is taking the limits off of God who's in us. We're not talking about you or me coming up with what we think is good. It's when the God's Spirit in us prompts us to do something and our mind looks at them and says, well, I wouldn't do that for them. Who are they? They don't need this. They don't. But then we're putting limits on what God wants to do in us and through us. We're not talking about, you know, I need to go give my money to everybody that comes along in the street. We're talking about allowing God to, love his, to give His love through you and through me. But when we have limits on what we're willing to do, we've now limited what God's able to do even though He wants to do more through us. Amen. And then, he, this is where it really gets tough. Verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Now we looked before at the Samaritan and we saw how, who he saw was his neighbor, whoever had a need. I say to you, love your enemies Isn't that what God did? We just read in Romans chapter 5 that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He didn't die for the church. He didn't die for those that love Him. He died for us while we were enemies. The only reason you can love Him today is because He died for you when you didn't. And you may say, well, pastor, you know, I, I, God wasn't my enemy. I've been in church my whole life. I was raised in church, you know. I, I've loved God. Well, have you? Or have you loved yourself more than you've loved God? Have you put limits on what you're willing to give of yourself to Him? Then that part of you, you love more than you love Him. Have you ever been stubborn? Have you ever resisted? Have you ever lied about whether you were stubborn or resisted? (laughs) Because some of you just did it now. (laughs) However, have you ever not told the complete truth? That's called a lie. However, have you hated anybody? That's called murder. See, God's standards are Himself. And by that standard, we're enemies of God because we've, we've talked about this before. All of us, until we came to Christ, we tried to establish our own kingdom. And I was the king of my kingdom because I was the one that made the final decisions of what I do because after all, it's my body so I can do with my body what I want to do with it. And the world is ripe with that attitude right now. It's my body. I can do what I, I want to do. That's establishing my own kingdom. And this is my kingdom, and I'm king in this kingdom, and don't tell me what I'm going to do, because I'm king here. And I'll let you be king in your kingdom, because that way I feel good about you leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. You can be king in your kingdom, and I'm king in my kingdom. But if I'm king in my kingdom, and you're king in in your kingdom, then God's not king in this kingdom. I've established my own kingdom in rebellion against His kingdom. And that's the root of all sin. This is why whether you were a good sinner or you were a lousy, rotten sinner, I'm not referring to how well you sinned, but you were a good person that sinned and you were a horrible person that sinned. We all lived in rebellion against God's authority. So we were enemies. We had our own kingdom and we were at war against Him and His right to us because He created us. But He loved us so much that look what He did. It says, verse 43, Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. It gets harder. Bless those 
that curse you. So you can have enemies that are kind of at a distance and you don't have to confront them. But when somebody's cursed you, he says, don't just even ignore it. Bless them back. It gets even tougher. Do good to those who hate you. Don't just sit there to your neighbor that's been saying things about you and throwing trash over in your yard or whatever it's been doing and just sit in your house and say, well, I'm going to love them, God. I'm going to love them. I know what they've done to me, but I'm going to love them. What if God did that? He just sat in a throne in heaven, said, I know they're rebelling against me, but I'm going to sit here and love them. I'm going to love them all the way to hell. I'm going to love them all the way, even when they go to hell, I'm still going to love them. But see, this kind of love can't sit still. This kind of love has to do something. He says, he doesn't say just love your neighbors, he says do good to those who hate you. Over in Romans chapter 13, he says, it's like pulling, pouring coals of fire on their head. It allows God to work in their lives. And then it gets even tougher. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute. Think of, wait a minute, we're, we're not talking about just an enemy that's out there somewhere that doesn't like you or has written something about you on Facebook. We're not just talking about your neighbor that throws their trash over in your yard or says things about you. We're talking about somebody, when it says who spitefully use you, that means they've thought about it, they planned it out, and they figured what it is that's going to hurt them the most. And they've chosen to pick that which is going to hurt you the most. They planned this out. Their purpose is to hurt you and take advantage. Nobody likes to be used because it's demeaning. They're going to not just use you, they're going to spitefully use you and persecute you because of what you believe. And what does he say to do for them? Pray for those. And by the way, the prayers and God, get them. <laughs> Give them what they deserve. Because if God starts dealing out what people deserve, I don't want it. Now look at why. This is the key. We're talking about the, the bounds of God's love. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, you may act like your Father. For He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Because if you just love those who, who love you, what reward do you have? You're no different than the world. Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors as the world do the same. Therefore you shall be complete or perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What we're looking at is this is, this is what, who God has loved. God's not only stepped across the street like the Samaritan did and loved us, but God has loved His enemies because that's who we were. And so the people in our life that we run across, they may be relatives, it may be friends, it may be co-workers, it may be your nasty neighbor that throws trash in your yard or does things or writes signs about you. Understand God loves them. God loves them. As much as He loves you, and we're going to learn next time, as much as He loves Jesus. It's up to us to be willing to allow Him to give that love through us, but He can only give it to the extent that will allow Him.
And if we think in the terms the world thinks, well, that person's terrible. They're, they're the dregs of society. Or look what they've done to me. Then we're going to limit God's ability to give His love to people that He loves just as much as He loves us. And we'll be the loser also. Because if you want to know the love of God, start giving it away. If you want to know what God's love is like, start giving it away. And then begin to ask Him for it. We've been looking at this prayer all along in Ephesians chapter 3. That God would strengthen us by His Spirit in our inner man. That Christ may be able to live His life in us and through us. Being rooted and grounded in love, we might come to know together with all the saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, the boundaries of the love of God that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we can be filled up with all the fullness of Him. God wants, you to, fill, wants to fill you with all His fullness, fill you with His Spirit. And that's not just an experience. That is being overflowing of God's love for people because God loves people, sinners, rebellious, proud, the dregs of society. There's no limit on who he'll love. And I'll end with this story. We're going to more, other boundaries we're going to talk about next time. I've shared this with you before, but it just comes to me again. I heard this story, and I heard it from the man. Some of you know who T.L. Osborne was. Some of you may not. He was, he was the Reinhardt Bunky of the 60s, of the 50s and the 60s. And he would go into Africa and go into places in Europe with open, open field conference uh, uh, crusades where he'd have 250,000, 300,000 people at a, at, a, at a meeting. And thousands would get healed and saved right on the spot. And, and, and I heard him sell, tell the story because he came to our Bible school and had us just transfixed by his stories. He told the story of he was in India. And he was being picked up by a limousine to go to a speak. He was the major speaker at this major conference. And he was in a white linen suit. And he's driving along in his air-conditioned limo. And as he turned the corner, there in the gutter, in the gutters in Calcutta, what it was then Calcutta, there was, was not like our gutters. It's not where the rainwater washed off. It was the sewer. And there lying in the sewer was a man who was dying. And he was of the untouchable class, which was the lowest possible class. And the reason they were given that name is you could not touch them. They would tell people if they got near, I'm unclean, because they were considered less than the dregs of society, less than the garbage. That's why he was dying in that mess. And he says, I turned the corner, I saw this man, something rose up in me that was beyond me. And he said, it was the compassion of God, and I told the driver to stop. He said, it just overtook me. And I got out of the car. And he said, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm supposed to be at that conference to talk about God's love. And he said, I went over to this man, and all I could do was to get down in the gutter in his white suit and hold this man that nobody even noticed, would touch, or talk to. They walked by him as he was in his last moments of life. And he said, I held him in my arms while he passed from this life into eternity. And he said, what overwhelmed me was I felt God's love for that man was so much that he would take me and put me in a gutter with him just to hold him and tell him I loved him while he was leaving this earth. I don't think I'd have done that. I don't know about you. I want to come to the place where I would be willing to do that. But the point is, 
He felt this love. He was willing to take the boundaries off. I'm sure his mind said, but I've got to be there. I'm a speaker. And what's it going to look like when I stand up in front of them and my clothes are covered with filth? But the question isn't, what am I going to look like in front of thousands of people? What am I going to look like in front of God? You know, God's not concerned with how pressed your suit is and how clean your shirt is. God's more concerned with what's in our heart and what we will allow Him to do through us. We're going to look at a couple of more boundaries that we think in terms of that we're going to see God has no limits on. But let's pray. Father, as we look at these words and we hear Your heart and we look at ourselves, we realize how, how, how we realize where we are. And we ask You to help us. Fill us with Your precious Holy Spirit. Strengthen us by your spirit and our inner man so that Christ may be able to live in us and live his life in us and live his life through us and help us to come to understand together with all the saints this love that passes understanding that there's no bounds, there's no width to it, there's no limit how wide you'll go, there's no limit on how far you'll go, there's no limit on how high you'll go there's no limit on how low your love will go. Give us that revelation. Fill us with your presence that we might know that love that passes understanding that that love may flow out of us like a river of living water. And for that grace, we thank you in Jesus' name.